Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal. This is Global Reboot. Welcome to the show. World leaders are in Dubai this week for COP28, the UN's annual climate change conference. And one issue that might come up is protecting our oceans. Oceans are easy to ignore. They're so vast that it seems it's always just going to be there. But climate change and man-made pollution is harming our oceans. And that in turn could have a range of big ripple effects on our lives. Oceans, after all, supply 50% of the oxygen we breathe. How do we do more to protect these large and so essential water bodies? Well, Monica Medina is the United States' first ever diplomat for biodiversity. She now serves as president and CEO of the Wildlife Conservation Society. She joined me to discuss how to preserve and protect our oceans and also shared some of the important progress that's been made so far. Global Reboot is a partnership between foreign policy and the Doha Forum. This is episode six of season three. Let's dive in. Monica Medina, welcome to Global Reboot. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me to talk about this important issue. Oceans matter to everyone, so it's great to be here. Indeed, and we appreciate you for making time for us. So I thought we should start, as we often do on Global Reboot, with the scope of the problem. What challenges are our oceans currently facing? The challenges are immense. I know people think the oceans are huge and they are too big to fail, but really they're too big to ignore. We have terrible problems now with pollution, with overfishing, and with the climate impact on the ocean. I think many people around the world have seen how ocean temperatures are heating up and in some places have exceeded records this past summer in the Northern Hemisphere. And we see it happening again now, beginning in the Southern Hemisphere. There are big ocean stressors that are really concerning to scientists and I think now increasingly to policymakers as we see those impacts happening to people all over the world, whether it's storms or sea level rise or even the way that our oceans are impacting droughts in some parts of the world. So it's a big concern. Mm. And how much of this uh, do you think can be attributed to climate change? How much of it is um, because of pollution and man-made waste that often sort of seeps into our waters? Well, gosh, I think no one's really tried to quantify how much each thing is a problem. What we can say is that 90% of the excess carbon in the atmosphere gets absorbed by the ocean, which causes that temperature rise. We also have a lot of direct pollution into the ocean, whether it's dumping from ships or there's all kinds of other plastic pollution that washes into the ocean from rivers in some of the most populous areas of the world. And then on top of that, nets from fishing. People think, oh, how could that possibly have a big impact? But there's a tremendous amount of plastic in the ocean, and much of it comes from fishing nets. And so we know that there are many, many things that are impacting the ocean. Then finally, I, I mentioned before fishing. We have seen a rise in fishing around the world, particularly distant water fishing fleets plying the oceans, going deeper and deeper into the oceans to reach the food that's there. We know that that's a part of the food insecurity problem around the world. People need 
fish in order to get protein in so many parts of the world. So whether it's coastal overfishing because we haven't managed it particularly well in coastal areas and we see those populations increasing, or whether it's big countries like China needing to feed their populations and going farther and farther away from home to get enough fish to bring back to feed people. So there's a lot of stress on the ocean right now. Mm. So I have to ask you something that might seem to you to be a silly question, um, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, why do the oceans matter so much? Um, why are they so important to protecting our planet's biodiversity? And I ask this question because there's so much ocean on our planet and it, it can seem so far away from where all of us are in cities um, or further inland in countries around the world. The oceans matter because they are crucial for our climate system. They provide oxygen. Every other breath we take is due to the fact that we are a blue planet. The oceans are all connected. And so people all over the, the globe are feeling the impacts of the ocean, even in very landlocked places. So it is it is a global system, and 70% of the planet is ocean, and most of that lies outside of national jurisdictions. So we have laws that cover parts of the ocean that are close to shore within 200 miles. But beyond that, 50% of the planet belongs to no country. And so that makes it an, also a, a challenge to govern. And we know that where there isn't governance, resources tend to get used or misused. And so there's that race to the bottom. And it does, uh, I think, impact everyone. Clearly, the island nations, um, ca they call themselves big ocean states, mm. bosses, because for them, their ocean territory is actually bigger than their land. So wow. it varies from country to country, how much coastline you have, how much ocean territory you have, whether it's a direct play in your economy. But for most countries, the ocean is a critical piece of their economy and their environmental stability, their climate systems. Mm. Now, you've worked in the US government and you're out of government now, but you still very much work in this space. Is it your sense that there is now widespread agreement on the things that you're describing? Uh, that climate change is impacting our environment, but specifically in this case, our oceans, do policymakers and politicians agree on these basic facts? Is the United States an outlier in that respect at all? Policymakers and uh, governments around the world do basically agree on that fact. There have been several developments in the last year that prove this. First, at the Convention on Biological Diversity Conference of the Parties meeting, there is a, a treaty that deals with biodiversity all around the world. And last December, there was an agreement adopted by consensus that we need to, as a globe, every country across the world needs to work to conserve 30% of their land and ocean spaces by 2030. And we need to conserve those areas beyond national jurisdiction in the ocean. So that agreement explicitly recognized the need to conserve ocean space, both within national jurisdiction and outside it. That's a huge step forward. Then four months later at 
the United Nations, the world again came together and by consensus agreed that we must be able to conserve areas outside of national jurisdiction and in order to get to that 30%. So we adopted a whole new treaty just to talk about how to conserve those areas outside of national jurisdiction. So I think there is indeed a consensus globally that oceans matter to everyone on the planet. Wow, well, at least there's that. I'm curious how big world events affect an issue like protecting our oceans. So I was thinking about the war in Ukraine, uh, which started last year. How did that, for example, impact the way in which uh, global efforts towards protecting our oceans and conducting policymaking towards that, was that adversely impacted? It's interesting. The war began at the almost the exact moment when the world had another big environmental meeting around the UN Environment Program. We agreed at that meeting to begin to negotiate an, a global agreement to end plastic pollution. There were many countries, including myself as the U.S. government representative there at the time, we spoke up against the war and against Russia's aggression and um, heinous acts in Ukraine. At the same time, we did manage to get consensus to go ahead and begin negotiating this global agreement to end plastic pollution. Much of the genesis for that agreement was the public's disdain for photos that they had seen of marine wildlife washing up on shore whales, for example, and their bellies were full of plastic. They, they, you know, washed up as sort of dead carcasses. And that caused an outcry and led to this agreement to be negotiated. And it's still in the midst of being negotiated now. But I will tell you one place in the ocean where the problem with the war is really causing tremendous difficulty is in the governance of Antarctica. Antarctica is a continent, but it has no government. It's run by a, a group of governments who've come together around a treaty. There is this effort among the countries that govern Antarctica to try to conserve a new protected area in the Antarctic, and that would be a tremendous thing for the world to do, again, to try to get to that 30% number in order to protect this very fragile part of the world, Antarctica, in order to protect some of the most vulnerable species to climate change, like penguins. The Ukraine government is actually the chair of that group of countries for the next two years. Russia is also a member and is blocking that consensus. China is blocking it as well, which is a shame. And we hope that through continued work and continued global consensus around the need to create these protected areas in the ocean, uh, we will get Russia and China to drop their objections. But right now, that's one place where it's really a problem. Gosh, it seems like those divisions that you're describing on ocean policy, they're mirrored uh, so much in so many other global issues. Now, Monica, this is Global Reboot, and a big part of each show is about trying to figure out how to fix big international problems. And we've been discussing the scope and scale of problems so far. So I thought I'd move us towards some of the solutions I know you think about all the time. And I thought I'd start by asking you about the High Seas Treaty. Tell me a bit more about 
what that is and why it's so important. It's so important because, as I said, it governs those areas of the planet that are ungovernable otherwise. There is a set of UN agreements on fishing in the high seas, and those work to some extent. And, and to be clear, the high seas are, these are parts of the ocean that are 200 kilometers away from coastline, is that right? Yes, 200 miles, 200 miles. away from, from coastlines, yes. Sometimes they're, it's smaller depending on international boundaries between two countries. It's a part of the Law of the Sea Convention overall, which is the big treaty that governs the ocean. And the U.S. is actually not a member of that agreement, and that's too bad because I think it leaves us in a place where we can't have a say in many of the most important issues that are happening in the ocean and some of the most important issues globally in foreign policy because we are not a member and we have to sort of sit back and we are just an observer in that agreement. And we agree to abide by all the rules, but we are not a member. We haven't ratified that treaty. Why, why is that? Because the high seas technically constitute a really big percentage of the world's oceans, right? Yes. The argument has been that the U.S. does not want to give up sovereignty over its own ability to uh, do things in the high seas. We don't want to be able to be brought into a, a court, an international court, over anything we might do. I think these arguments are really not as important as the things that we're giving up by not being a part of this agreement. We do have the ability to ratify parts of the convention, even if we don't ratify the whole convention. We hopefully can ratify this subpart, the BBNJ, the Areas Beyond National Jurisdiction or Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction Treaty. This new treaty is so important because it does govern half of the planet and it governs the discovery of new biological resources in that high seas area. So it both allows the world to create protected areas, parks like our national Mm. parks, but an international park, if you will, in the high seas and protect some of the most fragile and important marine ecosystems. But on top of that, it allows for a system in which um, there will be registration of new Uh, biological information, genetic sequencing information that comes out of the ocean that might lead to new advances in medicines or in in other uh, applications. Uh, So it's a shame for us not to be a a part of that. In this particular one, we could become a member if we were to ratify it, but we'd have to get 67 votes in the Senate. And I don't know that that we'll be able to, to do that given the reluctance to join the overall Law of the Sea Convention. So I have to ask you this, since you're not in government anymore, what would it take to get America on board? I think people would have to understand that, in fact, we are the largest ocean nation in the world. We have the largest exclusive economic zone. We benefit tremendously in our economy from the ocean, and our climate is impacted tremendously by the ocean. And there are big forces in the world. China, in particular, is extremely active in the use of ocean resources. They have the biggest distant water fleet. They're fishing 
more out in the high seas than anyone else. They're exploring tremendously. And if we want to be a force in this century. I believe this is going to be an ocean century. And if we, the U.S. government, want to be a force in the world for good, we have to be a part of these big treaties. I I hope that people see that it's important for us in our foreign policy and our security Mm. at, at its most basic, but also because of the impact on our environment. So uh, on that question of the environment, then, I was, I was hoping you could explain to us a bit about what marine protected areas are and why they are so important to protecting our biodiversity. So a marine protected area is a park in the ocean. And like parks on land, they often have different levels of protection within them. Many, many countries, the U.S. included, have, have created marine sanctuaries and uh, fully protected marine protected areas within our 200-mile jurisdiction. And that's a, a terrific thing. What a protected area does is create governance, first and foremost, within its boundaries. And it is uh, one key way to ensure that we hold on to and understand the way the ocean functions in our overall system within the planet. It is still a very much unknown part of the planet. We we often say in the ocean world that uh, we know more about the moon than we know about much of the ocean. Wow. There is a race now to discover a lot more of the ocean, to, to explore it, to map it. So there is a huge amount for us to know. And it's important to protect areas before they become overly industrialized or damaged by humans. And that's the key. We know that, particularly with respect to climate, if you can restrict all the other stressors, overfishing or pollution in a particular space, then even if it has some uh, damage due to climate change, it can rebound more easily. That's the wonderful thing about nature, is that if left alone and protected, it will conserve itself and it can even repair itself. So it's important for us to protect the ocean just like we protect parks on land. Mm. They're, they're full of wonders. They are important to us for environmental purposes, for climate purposes. And I think people in, do love the ocean at some very most uh, sort of spiritual, basic level. Uh, they, they see it as... A, key part of what makes us the blue planet, what what gives us life. That's such a great analogy uh, with parks. You know, and I was wondering globally, it often seems to me that it's lower income countries that bear the brunt of a lot of the problems you're describing, overfishing, often from wealthier countries. And it's poorer countries that lack the means and resources to create protections around their areas, to enforce any sort of fisheries management plans. Um, at a global level, what can be done to reverse that? Conservationists are working all around the world to create protected areas in some of these countries that are um, that are are struggling. We just saw the Republic of Congo create a marine protected area for the first time. Uh, we have seen uh, the Pacific Island nations, many of them stepping up to protect large parts of their big ocean 
territories, as much as 30% or more, Costa Rica, Colombia, Ecuador, some of the most uh, biodiverse countries in the world have stepped up to protect ocean resources. And we hope that many, many countries will do the same. When I was in the U.S. government, we started a push to get as many countries as we could to sign up to protect 30% of their ocean territory. And we had many, many countries sign up to do it. So we were very excited by that. And the U.S. is very, very close to that 30% number, which is amazing. We could get there if uh, President Biden and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration create uh, one more or add to one more existing monument um, in the ocean. They're working to make it a sanctuary, which is a slightly different legal set of protections. It's called the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument. And there are two more areas within that monument that if expanded and if it becomes a sanctuary, we will hit 30%. And then along with smaller ones like the Hudson Canyon one that we propose off the coast of New York when uh, the world was much different and land was much farther out, there was a canyon or there is a canyon out in the ocean now called Hudson Canyon at the end that extended the Hudson River. And we're trying to get it protected. We, the Wildlife Conservation Society, where I am the President and CEO, we're working very hard with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to protect that area. It's not as big as the Pacific Remote Islands, but we, the U.S., have very few protections along the East Coast. So that would be another one. It'd be great. Mm. At a global level, I'm curious. I mean, we were just talking about smaller countries, but it strikes me that sometimes the biggest countries, uh, on the one hand, you know, China, for example, was chair when the biodiversity treaty was pushed through, but it also continues to overfish along its coast. Um, the EU also is a leader on sustainability. It is one of the top fishers in our oceans. I'm curious at a global level, how you push all of these big countries, big regions, big blocks, how do you push them on better sustainability of our oceans? Um, when a lot of that will mean them having to change their fishing practices, some of those changes could be unpopular. How do you exert pressure? It is a challenge, but I think that new technology actually is the key because now we can see what's happening in the ocean much more easily than we could before. There's a wonderful NGO called Global Fishing Watch. And if you go to their website, you can see where fishing is happening in real time. And unless countries or particular vessels are not complying with the rules uh, for transparency of fishing, increasingly we can tell where the most damaging fishing activity is happening. And that public awareness is really important to bringing the right kinds of pressure. And in fact, I would argue that in some ways that's a more effective kind of pressure than even the legal tribunals that some treaties uh, have because it takes so long to get through those legal tribunal processes. The International Court of Justice takes a long time, um, the Law of the Sea Tribunal, a long time to come to a decision in a, in a court-type case, whereas the Court of Public Opinion reacts very quickly to information 
And I think increasingly traceability and consumers having the power to buy sustainable products, whether it's um, sustainable fish that is caught, we know, in the right places, harvested the right ways, or whether it's um, the use of uh, new technologies like seaweed to create replacements for plastics that are biodegradable and therefore not nearly as damaging to the environment, land or sea. Um, I, I think new technologies and accountability through public uh, transparency are far more effective in, ch- in solving these problems than some of the sort of old mechanisms of the treaty world. And in fact, there is a big question about whether the plastic agreement will be a treaty or an agreement like the Paris Agreement, where countries set their own plans, make them transparent, and then are held accountable in the public uh, for whether or not they meet their requirements. And I would argue in this day and age when ratification is a challenging thing for many small countries, sometimes those kind of executive agreements, those agreements like the Paris Accord can be far more effective because they can go into effect quickly and they have public accountability mechanisms that may be far more effective and quicker at bringing countries into compliance than the traditional treaty mechanisms. So in your reboot thinking in this program, I would say look at whether there may be better ways to get global agreement than just the old treaty form of agreement. And I guess on that, you know, especially in the global south in poorer countries where there are so many competing agendas, um, climate change, but also just hunger or poverty or people having access to electricity and energy. And amid all of that, how do you build a public mood um, in lower income countries Um, to build pressure on governments to take responsibility for what is essentially a shared public space, the oceans that you're describing. What we need to build is a global movement for conservation that connects everyone across the planet in this global goal because we have to have a shared sense of both the challenge and the solutions. And I think what is increasingly obvious is that even though environmental challenges and problems express themselves very locally, the solutions are, for the most part, global. And that's why I believe there is more and more agreement around the globe that we need to take action as a globe to solve these problems, whether it's climate change, ocean conservation, plastic pollution, or how to, how to solve water crises around the globe and the increasing awareness of the interconnection of even freshwater systems to the ocean and to these larger systemic uh, environmental processes. I think we're increasingly aware that we are interconnected both economically and ecologically, and so the solutions have to be global. Whether it's money or technological know-how or cooperation, whether it's countries like ours that have done so much under the Biden administration to bring about the ability to really reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and take responsibility for the pollution we're putting into the system, into the atmosphere, or whether it's through 
an agreement on shipping and shipping pollution, which we're increasingly working towards at another international um, body called the International Maritime Organization, or whether it's cooperation on ending plastic pollution and reducing the amount of plastic in the system. All of these things are going to come through global cooperation, and the, the cooperation north-south, east-west developed and developing countries. You know, um, Monica, the oceans, as you said, represent 70% of the world. It doesn't seem to me that it takes up 70% of our leaders' attention. When you work in this space, um, both in government and now out of government, what gives you hope? I will tell you, when, when that agreement, that Areas Beyond National Jurisdiction or BBNJ agreement was signed, the amount of press coverage it got really surprised me in a good way. I was really amazed that people sort of latched onto the fact that the planet was ungoverned in such a big part of its space and that people really do have an emotional connection to the ocean, whether it was the straw in the belly of the seabird that washed up on shore that caused people to viscerally say enough plastic pollution we have to stop this problem or whether it's the um, the incredible um, desire to uh, I think protect wild places in the ocean that people sort of instinctively can latch on to um, that's what gives me hope the fact that we were able to get so many countries to agree after so many years of negotiation uh, on this Areas Beyond National Jurisdiction Treaty really gives me a hope that future generations will get to have a planet with a healthy ocean, a healthy climate, and where uh, they can still enjoy some of those wonders. Monica Medina, what a pleasure to have you on Global Reboot. Thank you so much for having me. We at WCS are working to save the oceans everywhere, every day, and we're thrilled to be, uh, to be active in this part of conservation. And that was Monica Medina, the president and CEO of the Wildlife Conservation Society. Global Reboot is a partnership between Foreign Policy and the Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin and Dan Efron. Next week, you will hear from C. Raja Mohan, an FP columnist. We're going to talk about the increasing importance of the Global South in geopolitics and how the West should reboot its relations with the rest of the world. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I will see you next time. <laughs>